I told him he could put it where the sun didn't shine, said Sergeant Colon as they crossed the brass bridge. That's right, said Vimes woodenly. Well done. Right to his face, where the sun don't shine. Just like that, said Colon. It was a little difficult to tell from his tone whether this was a matter of pride or dread. I'm afraid Lord Rust is technically correct, sir, said Carrot. Really? Yes, Mr. Vimes, the safety of the city is of paramount importance, so in times of war the civil power is subject to military authority. <laughs> I told him, said Fred Colon, right where the sun does not shine, I said. The deputy ambassador didn't mention Prince Kafura, said Carrot. That was odd. I'm going home, said Vimes. We're nearly there, sir, said Carrot. I mean, home, home. I need some sleep. Yes, sir. What shall I tell the lad, sir? Tell them anything you like. I looked him right in the eye and I told him. I said, you can put it right where the sun, mused Sergeant Colon. You want me and some of the boys to go and sort out that rust later on, said Detritus. It's no problem. He's bound to be guilty of something. No. Vimes's head felt so light now that he couldn't touch the ground with a rope. He left them outside the yard and let his head drag him on and up the hill and round the corner and into the house and past his astonished wife and up the stairs and into the bedroom where he fell full length on the bed and was asleep before he hit it. At nine the next morning, the first recruits from Lord Venturi's heavy infantry paraded down Broadway. The watchman went out to watch. That was all that was left for them to do. Isn't that Mr Vimes's butler? said Angua, pointing to the stiff figure of Willikins in the front rank. Yeah, and that's his kitchen boy banging the drum in front, said Nobby. You were a, a military man, weren't you, Fred? said Carrot, as the parade passed by. Yes, sir. Duke of Aeorl's first heavy infantry, sir. The pheasant pluckers. Pardon? said Angua. Nickname for the regiment, miss. All from ages ago. They were bivvy-whacking on some estate and came across a lot of pheasant pens and, well, you know, having to live off the land and everything... Anyway, that's why we always wore a pheasant feather on our helmets. Traditional, see? Already old Fred's face was creasing up in the soft expression of someone who's been mugged in memory lane. We even had a marching song, he said. Mind you, it was quite hard to sing right. Uh, sorry, miss? Oh, it's all right, Sergeant, said Angua. I often start to laugh like that for no reason at all. Fred Colon once again stared dreamily at nothing. And, of course, before that I was in the Duke of Quirm's middleweight infantry. Saw a lot of action with them. I'm sure you did, said Carrot, while Angua entertained cynical thoughts about the actual distance of Fred's vantage point. Your distinguished military career has obviously given you many pleasant memories. The ladies liked the uniform, said Fred Colon, with the unspoken rider that sometimes a growing lad needed all the help he could get. And it... well... Yes, Sarge? Colon looked awkward, as if the bunched underwear of the past was tangling itself in the crotch of recollection. It was more easier, sir, than being a copper, I mean. I mean, you're a soldier, right, and the other buggers is the enemy. You march into some big field somewhere and all form up into them oblongs and then a bloke with a feathery helmet gives the order and you all forms up into big arrows. Good gods, do people really do that? I thought it was just how they drew the battle plans. Well, the old duke, sir, he did it by the book. Anyway, it's just a case of watching your back and walloping any bloke in the wrong uniform. But 
Fred Colon's face screwed up in agonised thought. Well, when you're a copper, well, you don't know the good guys from the bad guys without a map, miss, and that's a fact. But there's military law, isn't there? Well, yes, but when it's pissing with rain and you're up to your tonk, your, your, your waist, in dead horses and someone gives you an order, that ain't the time to look up the book of rules, miss. Anyway, most of it's about when you're allowed to get shot, sir. Oh, I'm sure there's more to it than that, Sergeant. Oh, probably, sir, Colin conceded diplomatically. I'm sure there's lots of stuff about not killing enemy soldiers who've surrendered, for instance. Oh, yes, there's that, Captain. Doesn't say you can't duff them up a bit, of course. Just give them a little something to remember you by. Not torture, said Angua. Oh, no, miss. But, uh, memory lane for Colon had turned into a bad road through a dark valley. Well, when your best mate's got an arrow in his eye and there's blokes and horses screaming all around you and you're scared shit, well, you're really scared, and you come across one of the enemy, well, for some reason or other, you've got this kind of urge to give him a bit of a, a nudge. Sort of thing. Just, you know, like, maybe in twenty years' time his leg'll twinge a bit on frosty days and he'll remember what he's done, that's all. He rummaged in a pocket and produced a very small book which he held up for inspection. This belonged to my great-grandad, he said. He was in the scrap we had against Pseudopolis and my great-grand gave him this book of prayers for soldiers because you need all the prayers you can get, believe you me. And he stuck it in the top pocket of his jerkin because he couldn't afford armour. And the next day in battle, whoosh! This arrow came out of nowhere, wham, straight into this book, and it went all the way through to the last page before stopping. Look, you can see the hole. Pretty miraculous, Carrot agreed. Yeah, it was, I suppose, said the sergeant. He looked ruefully at the battered volume. Shame about the other seventeen arrows, really. The drumming died away. The remnant of the watch tried to avoid one another's gaze. Then an imperious voice said, Why aren't you in uniform, young man? Nobby turned. He was being addressed by an elderly lady with a certain turkey-like cast of feature and a capital punishment expression. Me? Got one, missus, said Nobby, pointing to his battered helmet. A proper uniform, snapped the woman, handing him a white feather. What will you be doing when the Clatchians are ravishing us in our beds? She glared at the rest of the guards and swept on. Angua saw several others like her passing along the crowds of spectators. Here and there was a flash of white. "'I'll be thinking those Clatchians are jolly brave,' said Carrot. "'I'm afraid, Nobby, that the white feather is to shame you into joining up.' "'Oh, that's all right, then,' said Nobby, a man for whom shame held no shame. "'What am I supposed to do with it?' "'That reminds me. Did I tell you what I said to Lord Rust?' said Sergeant Colan nervously. Seventeen times so far,' said Angua, watching the women with the feathers. She added, apparently to herself, "'Come back with your shield or on it.' "'I wonder if I can get the lady to give me any more,' said Nobby. "'What was that?' said Carrot. "'These feathers,' said Nobby. "'They look like real goose. "'I've got a use for a lot more of these.' "'I meant, what was it that Angua said?' said Carrot. "'What? Oh, it's just something women used to say "'when they sent their men off to war. "'Come back with your shield or on it.' "'On your shield?' said Nobby. "'You mean like sledging sort of thing?' "'Like dead,' said Angua. "'It meant come back a winner or not at all.' "'Well, I always came back with my shield,' said Nobby. "'No problem there.' "'Nobby,' sighed Colon. "'You used to come back with your shield, "'everyone else's shield, "'a sack of teeth and fifteen pairs of still warm boots, "'on a cart.' 
Well, no point in going to war unless you're on the winning side, said Nobby, sticking the white feather in his helmet. Nobby, you was always on the winning side, the reason being you used to lurk around the edges to see who was winning, and then pull the right uniform off of some poor dead sod. I used to hear where the generals kept an eye on what you were wearing so they'd know how the battle was going. Lots of soldiers have served in lots of regiments, said Nobby. Right, what you say is true, only not usually during the same battle, said Sergeant Colon. They trooped back into the watch house. Most of the shift had taken the day off. After all, who was in charge? What were they supposed to be doing today? The only ones left were those who never thought of themselves as off-duty and the new recruits who hadn't had their keen edge blunted. I'm sure Mr Vimes will think of something, said Carrot. Look, I'd better take the Goriffs back to their shop. Mr Goriff says he's going to pack up and leave. A lot of Clatchians are leaving. You can't blame them either. Dreams rising with him like bubbles, Vimes surfaced from the black fathoms of sleep. Normally these days he treasured the moment of waking. It was when solutions presented themselves. He assumed bits of his brain came out at night and worked on the problems of the previous day, handing him the result just as he opened his eyes. All that arrived now were memories. He winced. Another memory turned up. He groaned. The sound of his badge bouncing on the table replayed itself. He swore. He swung his legs off the covers and groped for the bedside table. Bingly bingly beep. Oh, no. All right. What's the time? One o'clock p.m. Hello, insert name here. Vimes looked blearily at the disorganiser. One day he knew he really would have to try to understand the manual for the damn thing, either that or drop it off a cliff. One of the universal rules of happiness is always be wary of any helpful item that weighs less than its operating manual. What? he began and then groaned again. The twanging sound made by the unwound turban as it took his weight had just come back to haunt him. Sam? The bedroom door was pushed open and Sybil came in carrying a cup. Yes, dear. How do you feel? I've got bruises on my bruises. Another memory crawled up from the pit of guilt. Oh, good grief, did I really call him a long streak of... Yes, said his wife. Fred Colan came round this morning and told me all about it. And a very good description, I'd say. I went out with Ronnie Rust once. Bit of a cold fish. Another recollection burst like a ball of marsh gas in Vimes's head. Did Fred tell you where he said Rust could put his badge? Yes. Three times. It seems to be weighing on his mind. Anyway, knowing Ronnie, he'd have to use a hammer. Vimes had long ago got used to the fact that the aristocracy all seemed to know one another by their first name. And did Fred tell you anything else? he said timidly. Yes, about the shop and the fire and everything. I'm proud of you. She gave him a kiss. What do I do now? he said. Drink your tea and have a wash and a shave. I ought to go down to the watch house and a shave. There's hot water in the jug. When she'd left, he hauled himself upright and tottered into his bedroom. There was indeed a jug of hot water on the marble washstand. He looked at his face in the mirror. Unfortunately, it was his. Perhaps if he shaved it first, and then he could wash the bits that were left. Fragments of the night before kept on respectfully drawing themselves to his attention. It was a shame about that guard, but sometimes you just couldn't stand and argue. He shouldn't have done that with his badge. It wasn't like the old days. He had responsibilities. He should have stayed on and made things just a little less... No... That never worked. He managed to get the lather on his face. The riot act, good grief. 
He stropped his razor thoughtfully. Rust's milky eyes stared out of his memory. Bastard. Men like that thought, they really thought, that the watch was a kind of sheepdog to nip at the heels of the flock, bark when spoken to, and never, ever bite the shepherd. Ah, oh, yes, Vimes knew in his bones who the enemy was. Except no badge, no watch, no job. Another memory arrived, late. Lather still dripping down his shirt, he pulled Vetinari's sealed letter out of his pocket and slit it open with the razor. There was a blank sheet of paper inside. He turned it over and there was nothing on the other side either. Mystified, he glanced at the envelope. Sir Samuel Vimes, knight. Nice of him to be so precise about it, Vimes thought. What was the point of a message with no message? Some people might absent-mindedly have slipped the wrong piece of paper in an envelope, but Vetinari wouldn't. What was the point of sending him a note telling him he was a knight, for God's sake? He knew that embarrassing fact well enough. Another little memory burst open as silently as a mouse passing wind in a hurricane. Who'd said it? Any gentleman? Vimes stared. Well, he was a gentleman, wasn't he? It was official. And then he didn't shout, and he didn't run out of the room. He finished shaving, had a wash, and put on a change of underwear very calmly. Downstairs, Sybil had cooked him a meal. She wasn't a very good cook. This was fine by Vimes because he wasn't a very good eater. After a lifetime of street meals, his stomach wasn't set upright. What it craved was little crunchy brown bits, the food group of the gods, and Sybil reliably always left the pan too long on the dragon. She eyed him carefully as he chewed his fried egg and stared into the middle distance. Her manner was that of someone with a portable safety net watching a man on the high wire. After a while, while she watched him crack open a sausage, he said, "'Do we have any books on chivalry, dear?' Hundreds, Sam. Is there anyone which tells you what, uh, you know, what it's all about? I mean, what you have to do if you're a knight, say. Responsibilities and so on. Most of them, I should think. Good. I think I shall do a little reading. Vimes hit the bacon with his fork. It shattered very satisfactorily. Afterwards, he went into the library. Twenty minutes later, he came back out for a pencil and some paper. Ten minutes after that, Lady Sybil took him a cup of coffee. He was hidden behind a pile of books and apparently deep in Life of Chivalry. She crept out and went into her own study, where she settled down to update her dragon-breeding records. It was an hour later when she heard him step out into the hall. He was humming under his breath, tunelessly, with the faraway look of preoccupation that means that some big thought has required the shutting down of all non-essential processes. He was also re-radiating the field of angered innocence that was, to her, part of his essential vimesness. Are you going out, Sam? Yes. I'm just going to kick some arse, dear. Oh, good. Just be sure you wrap up well, then. The Goriff family trudged along silently beside Carrot. I'm sorry about your shop, Mr Goriff, he said. Goriff shifted the load he was carrying. We can start other shops, he said. We'll certainly keep an eye on it, said Carrot, and when all this is over you can come back. Thank you. His son said something in Clatchian. There was a brief family argument. I appreciate your strength of feeling, said Carrot, going red, although I must say I think your language was a little strong. 
My son is sorry, said Gorif automatically. He did not remember that you speak Clatchy. No, I'm not. Why should we run away, said the boy. We live here. I've never seen Clatch. Oh, well, that would be something to look forward to, said Carrot. I hear it has many fine... Are you stupid, said Janil. He shook himself free of his father's grasp and confronted Carrot. I don't care. I don't want all this stuff about the moon rising over the mountains of the sun. I get that at home all the time. I live here. Now you really ought to listen to your parents. Why? My dad works all the time and now he's being pushed out. What good's that? We ought to stay here and defend what's ours. Ah, well, you shouldn't take the law into your own hands. Why not? It's our job, but you're not doing it. There was a rattle of Clatchian from Mr. Goriff. He says I've got to apologise, said Janiel sullenly. I'm sorry. So am I, said Carrot. The boy's father gave him that complicated shrug used by adults in a situation involving adolescence. You'll be back, I know it, said Carrot. We shall see. They went down the quay towards a waiting boat. It was a Clatchian ship. People lined the rails, people who were getting out with what they could carry before they could only get out with what they wore. The watchmen found themselves under hostile scrutiny. Surely Rust isn't already forcing Clatchins out of their homes, said Angua. We can tell which way the wind is blowing, said Goriff calmly. Carrot sniffed the salt air. It's blowing from Clatch, he said. For you, perhaps, said Goriff. A whip cracked behind them and they stood aside as several coaches rumbled by. A blind at the window was pulled aside momentarily. Carrot caught a brief glimpse of a face, all gold teeth and black beard, before the cloth twitched back. That's him, isn't it? There was a faint grunt from Angua. She had her eyes closed, as she always did when she was letting her nose do the seeing. Clothes, she murmured, and then grabbed Carrot's arm. Don't run after it, there's armed men on that ship. What will they think when they see a soldier running towards them? I'm not a soldier. How long do you think they'll spend working out the difference? The coach pushed through the press of people on the dock. The crowd surged back around it. There's boxes being unloaded. I can't quite see, said Carrot, shading his eyes. Look, I'm sure they'll understand if... 71-hour Ahmed stepped out onto the dock and looked back towards the watchman. There was a momentary sparkle as he grinned. They saw his hand reach over his shoulder and come back holding the curved sword. I can't just let him get away, said Carrot. He's a suspect. Look, he's laughing at us. With diplomatic impunity, said Angua. But there's a lot of armed men down there. My strength is as the strength of ten because my heart is pure, said Carrot. Really? Well, there's eleven of them. Seventy-one-hour Ahmed threw his sword in the air. It spun a couple of times, making a whum-whum noise, and then his hand shot out and caught it by the handle as it fell. That's what Mr. Vimes was doing, said Carrot, through gritted teeth. Now he's taunting us. You will be killed if you go on the ship, said Gorif, behind him. I know that man. You do? How? He is feared in the whole of Clatch. That is seventy-one-hour Ahmed. Yes. Why is... You haven't heard of him? And he is a dreg. Mrs. Gorif pulled at her husband's arm. Dreg, said Angua. A warlike desert tribe, said Carrot. Very fierce. Honourable, though. They say that if a dreg is your friend, he's your friend for the rest of your life. And if he's not your friend? Er, uh, that's about five seconds. He drew his sword. Nevertheless, he added, we can't let him... I have said too much. We must go, said Gorif. The family picked up their bundles. 
Look, there might be another way to find out about him, said Angua. She pointed at the carriage. A couple of lean, long-haired and extremely graceful dogs had been let out and were straining at their leashes as they led the way up the gangplank. Clatchistan hunting dogs, she said. The Clatchian nobility are very keen on them, I understand. They look a bit like... Carrot began and then the penny dropped. No, I can't let you go on there by yourself, he said. Something would go wrong. I stand a much better chance than you would, believe me, said Angua quickly. They won't be leaving until the tide changes in any case. It's too dangerous. Well, they are supposed to be our enemies. I meant for you. Why, said Angua. I've never heard of werewolves in Clatch, so they probably don't know how to deal with us. She undid the little leather collar that held her badge and handed it to Carrot. Don't worry, she said. If the worst comes to the worst, I'll dive overboard. Into the river? Even the river Ark can't kill a werewolf. Angua glanced at the turgid water. Probably, anyway. Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs had gone on patrol. They weren't sure why they were patrolling and what they were supposed to do if they saw a crime, although many years of training had enabled them not to see some quite large crimes. But they were creatures of habit. They were watchmen, so they patrolled. They didn't patrol with a purpose. They patrolled, as it were, in pure essence. Nobby's progress wasn't helped by the large leather-bound book in his arms. A war would do this place good, said Sergeant Colon after a while. Put some backbone in people. Everything's gone all to pot these days. Not like when we were kids, Sarge. Not like when we were kids, indeed, Nobby. People trusted one another in them days, didn't they, Sarge? People trusted one another, Nobby. Yes, Sarge, I know, and people didn't have to lock their doors, did they? That's right, Nobby, and people were always ready to help. They were always in and out of one another's houses. That's right, Sarge, said Nobby vehemently. I know no one ever locked their houses down our street. That's what I'm talking about. That's my point. It was cause the bastards even used to steal the locks. Colon considered the truth of this. Yes, but at least it was each other's stuff they were necking, Nobby. It's not like they was foreigners. Right. They strolled on for a while, each entangled in his own thoughts. Sarge? Yes, Nobby? Where's New Bylia? New Bylia? It's got to be a place, I reckon. Pretty warm there, I think. Ah, New Bylia? said Colon. He invented desperately. Right, yes. It's one of them Clatchian places. Yeah, it's got lots of sand and mountains. Uh, exports dates. Why do you want to know? Oh, uh, <clears throat> no reason. Nobby? Yes, Sarge? Why are you carrying that huge book? Eh, clever idea, Sarge. I saw what you said about that book of your great-granddad, so if there's any fighting, I got this one off of Washpot. It's the Book of Om, five inches thick. It's a bit big for a pocket, Nobby. It's a bit big for a cart, to be honest. I thought I could make sort of braces to carry it. I reckon even a longbow could only get an arrow as far as the apocrypha. A familiar creak made them look up. A clatchian's head was swinging in the breeze. Fancy a pint, said Sergeant Colon. Big Angie brews up some that's a treat. Better not, Sarge. Mr Vimes is in a bit of a mood. Colon sighed. You're right. Nobby looked up at the head again. It was wooden. 
It had been repainted many times over the centuries. The Clatchian was smiling very happily for someone who'd never have to buy a shirt ever again. The Clatchian's head. My granddad said his granddad remembered when it was still the real one, Colin said. Of course it was about the size of a walnut by then. Bit nasty, sticking up a bloke's head for a pub sign, said Nobby. No, Nobby. Spoils of war, right? Some bloke came back from one of the wars with a souvenir, stuck it on a pole and opened a pub. The Clatchian's head. Teach him not to do it again. I used to get into enough trouble just for nicking boots, said Nobby. More robust times, Nobby. You ever met a Clatchian, Sarge? said Nobby as they began to pace the length of the quiet street. I mean, one of the wild ones. Well, no, but you know what? They're allowed three wives. That's criminal, that is. Yeah, cos here's me, and I ain't got one, said Nobby. And the eat funny grub, curry and that. Nobby gave this some thought. Like uh, we do when we're on late duty. Well, yes, but they don't do it properly. You mean runny earwax yellow with peas and currants in, like your mum used to do? Right, you poke around as much as you like in a clatchian curry and you won't find a single piece of swede. And I heard where they eat sheep's eyeballs too, said Nobby, international gastronome. Right again. Not decent ordinary stuff like lamb's fry or sweetbreads then. Er, uh, that's right. Colon felt that he was being got at in some way. Look, Nobby, when all's said and done, they ain't the right colour. And there's an end to it. Good job you found out, Fred, said Nobby, so cheerfully that Sergeant Colon was almost sure that he meant it. Well, it's obvious, he conceded. Er, uh, what is the right colour, said Nobby. White, of course. Not brick red, then, cos you are... Are you winding me up, Corporal Nobbs? Course not, Sarge. So, what colour am I? That caused Sergeant Colon to think. You could have found somewhere on Corporal Nobbs a shade appropriate to every climate on the disc, and a few found only in specialist medical books. White is... White is a state of, you know, mind, he said. It's like doing an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, that sort of thing. And washing regular. Not lazing around sort of thing, right? Or like working all hours like Goriff does. Nobby, and you never see those kids of his with dirty clothes. Nobby, you're just trying to get me going, right? You know we're better than Clatchians, otherwise what's the point? Anyway, if we're going to fight him, you could get locked up for going around talking treachery. Are you going to fight them, Fred? Fred Colon scratched his chin. Well, as a experienced military man, I suppose I'll have to. What are you going to do, join a regiment and go to the front? Well, my forte lies in training, so I reckon I'd better stay here and train up the new recruits. Here at the back, you might say. We all have to do our bit, Nobby. If it was down to me, I'd be out there like a shot, giving Johnny Clatchin a taste of cold steel. Their razor-sharp swords wouldn't worry you then? I should laugh at them with scorn, Nobby. But supposing the Clatchians attack here, then you'll be at the front, and the front will be at the back. I'll sort of try for a post in, in the middle. The middle of the front, or the middle of the... Gentlemen? They looked round to find that they had been followed by a man of medium height, but with an extraordinary head. It wasn't that he had gone bald, 
He had quite a lot of hair, which was long and curly and reached almost to his shoulders, and his beard was large enough to conceal a small chicken. But his head had simply risen through his hair like a kind of intrusive dome. He gave them a friendly smile. Am I, by any chance, addressing the heroic Sergeant Colon and the... The man looked at Nobby. Expressions of amazement, dread, interest and charity passed across his otherwise sunny countenance like storm-driven clouds. And the Corporal Nobs, he finished. That is us, citizen, said Colon. Ah, good. I was very specifically told to find you. It's quite amazing, you know. No one had ever broken into the boathouse, although I must say I did design the locks rather well. <laughs> and all I've had to do is replace the leatherwork around the joints and grease it up. Oh, do excuse me. I've got rather ahead of myself now. There was a message I had to give you. Um, what was it now? Something about your hands. He reached down into the large canvas bag by his feet and pulled out a long tube, which he handed to Nobby. I do apologise about this, he said, producing a smaller tube and handing it to Colon. I had to do things in such a hurry. There really was no time to finish it off properly, and frankly the materials are not very good. Colon looked at his tube. It was pointed at one end. This is a firework rocket, he said. Look, it's got a riot of coloured balls and stars on it. "'Yes, I do so apologise,' said the man, "'lifting a complex little arrangement of wood and metal out of the bag. "'May I have the tube back, Corporal?' "'He took it and screwed the arrangement onto one end. "'Thank you. Yes, I am afraid that without my lathe, and indeed my forge, "'I really have had to make do with what I could find lying around. "'Could I have the rocket back, please, thank you?' "'They don't go properly without a stick,' said Nobby. "'Oh!' "'In fact, they do,' said the man, "'just not very accurately.' "'He raised the tube to shoulder height "'and peered into a small wire grid. "'That seems about right,' he said. "'And they don't go along,' said Nobby. "'They just go up.' "'Ah, a common misconception,' said Leonard of Quirm, "'turning to face them. "'Colon could see the tip of the rocket "'in the depths of the tube "'and had a sudden image of stars and balls.' Now, apparently, you two have to step into this alley here and come with me, said Leonard. I'm very sorry about this, but his lordship has explained to me at great length how the needs of society as a whole may have to overrule the rights of a particular individual. Oh, and I've just remembered. Mm, mm, you have to put your hands up. Sand had been spilled across the big table in the rat's chamber. Lord Rust felt a sensation akin to pleasure as he surveyed it. There were the little square boxes for the towns and cities, and cut-out palm trees to indicate the known oasises. And although he was uneasy about the word oasises, Lord Rust looked at it and saw that it was good, especially since it was a map of Clatch, and everyone knew that Clatch was sand anyway, which made it rather satisfying in an existential sort of way, although this sand here had been commandeered from the heap behind Chalky the Troll's wholesale pottery, and bore the occasional cigarette end and trace of feline incontinence that would probably not be found in the real desert, or certainly not to scale. Here would be a good landing area, he said, pointing with his stick. His equerry tried to look helpful. The elk? 
Kent Peninsula, he said. That's the closest point to us, sir. Exactly. We can be across the straits in jig time. Very good, sir, said Lieutenant Hornet. But you don't think the enemy might be expecting us there, it being such an obvious landing site? Not obvious at all to the trained military thinker, sir. They won't be expecting us there precisely because it is so obvious, do you see? You mean they'll think only a complete idiot would land there, sir? Correct. And they know we're not complete idiots, sir. And therefore that will be the last place they will be expecting us, do you see? They'll be expecting us somewhere like... His stick stabbed into the sand. Here. Hornet looked closely. In the street outside, someone started to bang a drum. Oh, you mean Eritor, he said, where I believe there is a concealed landing area and two days forced march through good cover would have us at the heart of the Empire, sir. Exactly. Whereas landing at El Kint means three days over sand dunes and past the fortified city of Gebra. Precisely. Wide open spaces. And that is where we can practice the art of warfare. Lord Rust raised his voice above the drumming. That's how you settle these things. One decisive battle. Us on one side, the Clatchins on the other. That is how these things are done. He threw down his pointer. Who the devil is making that infernal noise? The equerry walked across to the window. It's someone else recruiting, sir, he said. But we're all here. The equerry hesitated, as the bearers of bad tidings to short-tempered men often do. It's Vimes, sir. Recruiting for the watch? Er, uh, no, my lord, for a regiment. Uh, the banner says Sir Samuel Vimes is first of foot, my lord. The arrogance of the man. Go and... No, I'll go myself. There was a crowd in the street. In the centre there rose the bulk of Constable Dorfel, and a key thing about the golem was that if he was banging a drum, then no one was going to ask him to stop. No one except possibly Lord Rust, who strode up and snatched the drumsticks out of his hands. Yes, it are species of your choice's life in the first of foot, shouted Sergeant Detritus, unaware of the events going on behind him. You're learning a trade, you're learning self-respect. Also, you get spiffy uniform, plus all the boots you can eat. Here, that's my banner. What's the meaning of this? said Rust, flinging the homemade banner onto the ground. Vimes can't do this. A figure detached itself from the wall where it had been watching the show. You know, I rather think I can, said Vimes. He handed Rust a piece of paper. It's all here, my lord, with references citing the highest authorities, in case you are in any doubt. Citing the high... On the role of a knight, my lord. In fact, the duties of a knight, funnily enough. A lot of it is pretty damn stupid stuff, riding around the place on one of those bloody great horses with curtains round it and so on. But one of them says, in time of need, a knight has to raise and maintain... You'll laugh when I tell you this... A body of armed soldiers. No one could have been more surprised than me, I don't mind telling you. Seems there's nothing for it, but I have to go out and get some chaps together. <laughs> of course, most of the watch have joined. Well, you know how it is. Disciplined lads, anxious to do their bit. So that saved me a bit of effort. Except for Nobby Dobbs, because he says if he leaves it till Thursday, he's going to have enough white feathers for a mattress. Rust's expression would have preserved meat for a year. 
This is a nonsense, he said, and you, Vimes, certainly are no knight. Only a king can make... There's a good few lordships in this city created by the patricians, said Vimes. Your friend Lord Dowdy, for one. You were saying... Then, if you persist in playing games, I will say that before a knight is created, he must spend a night's vigil watching his armour. Practically every night of my life, said Vimes. A man doesn't keep an eye on his armour round here. That man's got no armour in the morning. In prayer, said Rust, sharply. That's me, said Vimes. Not a night has gone by without me thinking, ye gods, I hope I get through this alive. And he must have proved himself on the field of combat against other trained men, Vimes, not vermin and thugs. Vimes started to undo the strap on his helmet. Well, this isn't the best of moments, my lord, but if someone'll hold your coat, I can spare you five minutes. In Vimes's eyes, Rust recognised the fiery gleam of burning boats. I know what you're doing, Vimes, and I am not going to rise to it, he said, taking a step back. In any case, you have had no formal training in arms. That's true, said Vimes. You've got me there right enough. No one ever trained me in arms. I was lucky there. He leaned closer and lowered his voice so that the watching crowd wouldn't hear. You see, I know what training in arms means, Ronald. There hasn't been a real war in ages, so it's all prancing around and wearing padded waistcoats and waving swords with knobs on the end. So no one'll really get hurt, isn't it? But down in the shades, no one's had any training in arms either. Wouldn't know an epée from a sabre. No, what they're good at is a broken bottle in one hand and a length of four by two in the other, and when you face them, Ronnie, you know you aren't going off for a laugh and a jolly drink afterwards because they want you dead. They want to kill you, you see, Ron. And by the time you've swung your nice shiny broadsword, they've carved their name and address on your stomach. And that's where I got my training in arms. Well, fists and knees and teeth and elbows, mostly. You, sir, are no gentleman, said Rust. I knew there was something about me that I liked. Can you not even see that you can't enrol dwarfs and trolls in an Ankh-Morpok regiment? It just says armed soldiers and dwarfs come with their own axes. A great saving. Besides, if you've ever seen them really fight, then you must have been on the same side. Vimes... It's Sir Samuel, my lord. Rust seemed to think for a moment. Very well, then, he said. Then you and your regiment come under my command. Strangely, no, said Vimes swiftly. Under the command of the king or his duly appointed representative, it says in Scavone's chivalric law and usage, and of course there has been no duly appointed representative ever since some complete bastard cut off the last king's head. Oh, assorted bods appeared to have been ruling the city, but according to the chivalric tradition... Rust stopped to think again. He had the look of a lawnmower just after the grass has organised a workers' collective. There was a definite suggestion that deep inside he knew this was not really happening. It could not be happening because this sort of thing did not happen. Any contradictory evidence could be safely ignored. However, it might be necessary to find some motions to go through. I think you'll find that legally your position, he began, and his eyes bulged for a moment as Vimes interrupted him cheerfully. Oh, there might be a few problems, I grant you, but if you ask Mr Slant, he'll say this is a very interesting case, which, as you know, is lawyer talk, for $1,000 a day plus expenses, and it'll take months. 
So I'll leave you to get on with it, shall I? Got such a lot of things to do, you know. I think the swatches for the new uniforms should be in my office about now. It's so important to look right on the battlefield, isn't it? Rust gave Vimes another look and then strode away. Detritus stamped to attention beside Vimes, and his salute clanged smartly off his helmet. What we're doing now, sir? We can pack up now, I think. All the lads have joined up? Yes, sir. You told them it wasn't compulsory? Yes, sir. I said, it ain't compulsory, you just got to... Sir, Detritus, I wanted volunteers. That's right, sir. They volunteered all right. I saw to that. Vimes sighed as he walked back to his office. But they were probably safe. He was pretty sure he was legally sound, and if he knew anything about Rust, the man would respect the letter of the law. Such men did in a chilly way. Besides, thirty men in the watch simply didn't figure in the great scheme of things. Rust could ignore them. Suddenly there's a war brewing, Vimes thought, and they all come back. Civil order is turned upside down because that's the rules, and people like Rust are at the top of the heap again. You have these aristocrats lazing around for years, and suddenly the old arm is out, and the sword is being taken down from over the fireplace. They think there's going to be a war, and all they can think about is that wars can be won or lost. Someone's behind this. Someone wants to see a war. Someone paid to have Ossie and Snowy killed. Someone wanted the prince dead. I've got to remember that. This isn't a war. This is a crime. And then he realised he was wondering if the attack on Goriff's shop had been organised by the same people, and whether those same people had set fire to the embassy. And then he realised why he was thinking like this. It was because he wanted there to be conspirators. It was much better to imagine men in some smoky room somewhere, made mad and cynical by privilege and power, plotting over the brandy. You had to cling to this sort of image, because if you didn't, then you might have to face the fact that bad things happened because ordinary people, the kind who brushed the dog and told their children bedtime stories, were capable of then going out and doing horrible things to other ordinary people. It was so much easier to blame it on them. It was bleakly depressing to think that they were us. If it was them, then nothing was anyone's fault. If it was us, what did that make me? After all, I'm one of us. I must be. I've certainly never thought of myself as one of them. No one ever thinks of themselves as one of them. We're always one of us. It's them that do the bad things. Around about this time, in his former life, Vimes would be taking the cap off a bottle and wouldn't be too bothered about the bottle's contents so long as they crinkled paint. Oh, hello. What can I do for... Oh, yes. I asked about books on Clatch. Is that all? The librarian shyly held out a small, battered green book. Vimes had been expecting something bigger, but he took it anyway. It paid to look at any book the orangutan gave you. He matched you up to books. Vimes supposed it was a knack, in the same way that an undertaker was very good at judging heights. On the spine, in very faded gold lettering, were the words Veni Vidi Vici, A Soldier's Life, by Gen A. Tacticus. Nobby and Sergeant Colon edged along the alley. I know who he is, Fred hissed. That's Leonard of Quirm, that is. He went missing five years ago. So he's called Leonard, and he's from Quirm. So what, said Nobby. He's a raving genius. He's a loony. 
Yeah, well, they say there's a thin line between genius and madness. He's fallen off it, then. The voice behind them said, Oh, dear, this won't do at all, will it? I can't deny it, you were quite right, the accuracy would be quite unacceptable at any reasonable range. Could you bear to stop a moment, please? They turned. Leonard was already dismantling the tube. If you could just hang on to this bit, Corporal, and, 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 and Sergeant, if you would be so good as to hold this piece steady, some sort of fins should do it. I'm sure I had a suitable piece of wood somewhere. Leonard began to pat his pockets. The watchman realised that the man holding them up had paused to redesign his weapon and had given it to them to hold while he looked for a screwdriver. This was a thing that did not often happen. Nobby silently took the rocket from Colon and pushed it into the tube. "'What's this bit here, mister?' he said. Leonard glanced up briefly in between patting his pockets. Uh, "'Oh, that's the trigger,' he said, "'which, as you can see, rubs against the flint and good.' There was a short burst of flame and rather more black smoke. "'Oh, dear,' said Leonard. The watchmen turned, like men dreading what they were about to see. The rocket had shot the length of the alley and through the window of a house. "'Ah, putting this way up on the projectile would be an important safety point to bear in mind for the new design,' said Leonard. "'Now, where's that notebook?' "'I think we'd better leave,' said Colin, moving backwards. Very fast. Inside the house there was an explosion of stars and balls to delight young and old, but not the troll who had just opened the door. Ah, really? said Leonard. Well, if speed is required, I have this very interesting design for a two-wheeled... Acting on an unspoken agreement, the watchman each put a hand under a shoulder, lifted him off the ground and ran for it. Oh, dear, said Leonard as he was dragged backwards. The watchman dived into a side alley and then jinked and dodged along several others with quiet professionalism. Finally, they leaned Leonard against a wall and peered around the end of the alley. All clear, said Nobby. They went the other way. Right, said Colin. Now, what was you doing? I mean, you might be a genius like I heard, Mr. De Quirm, but when it comes to threatening people, you're as clever as an inflatable dartboard. I appear to have been a bit of a juggins, don't I? Leonard agreed. But I do implore you to come with me. I'm afraid I thought that as warriors you would be more inclined to understand force. Well, yes, we're warriors, said Sergeant Colon, but... Here, have you got another one of these rockets? said Nobby, hefting the tube onto his shoulder again. He had the special gleam in his eye that a small man gets when he's laid his hands on a big, big weapon. I may have, said Leonard and the gleam in his eye was the mad twinkle of the naturally innocent when they think they're being cunning. "'Why don't we go and see? You see, I was told to fetch you by any means necessary.' "'Bribery sounds good,' said Nobby. He put his eye to the tube sights and started making whoosh noises. "'Who told you to fetch us?' said Colon. "'Lord Vetinari. The patrician wants us?' Yes, he said you have special qualities and must come at once. To the palace? I heard he'd done a runner. Oh, no, to the, to the, um, uh, uh, to the docks. Special qualities, eh? said Colon. Uh, Sarge, Nobby began. 
Now then, Nobby, said Colon importantly, it's about time we were given some recognition. You know that. Experienced officers are the backbone of the force. Seems to me, he went on, seems to me that this is a case of cometh the time, cometh the man. When's he cometh? I'm talking about us, men with special qualities. Nobby nodded, but with a certain amount of reluctance. In many ways, he was a much clearer thinker than his superior officer, and he was worrying about special qualities. Being picked for something because of your special qualities was tantamount to being volunteered. Anyway, what was so special about special qualities? Limpets had special qualities. Will we go undercover again? said Colon. Leonard blinked. There, yes, I think I can say there is a strong... "'Under-element involved, yes, indeed.' "'Sarge, you just be quiet, Corporal,' Colon pulled Nobby closer. "'Undercover means not getting stabbed and shot at, right?' he whispered. "'And what's the most important thing a professional soldier wants not to happen to him?' "'Not getting stabbed and shot,' said Nobby automatically. "'Right. So, let's be going, Mr. Quirm. The call has come.' "'Well done,' said Leonard.' "'Tell me, Sergeant, are you of a nautical persuasion?' Colon saluted again. "'No, sir. Happily married man, sir. "'I mean, have you ploughed the ocean waves at all?' Colon gave him a cunning look. "'Ah, you can't catch me with that one, sir,' he said. "'Everyone knows the horses would sink.' Leonard paused for a moment and retuned his brain to radio Colon. "'Ah... Uh, have you in the past floated around on the sea in a boat at all? Me, sir? Not me. It's the sight of the waves going up and down, sir. Really, said Leonard. Well, happily, that will not be a problem. All right. Start again. Assembling facts. That's what it was about. The world watched. Someone wanted the watch to say that the assassination had been inspired by Clatch. Who? Someone had also beheaded Snowy Slopes where he stood and left him deader than six buckets of fish bait. A vision of 71-hour Ahmed's big curved sword presented itself for his attention. So, let's assume that Ahmed was Kufura's servant or bodyguard and he'd found out... No, how could that work? Who'd tell him? Well, maybe he'd found out somehow, and that meant that he might also know who'd paid the man. Vime sat back. It was still a mystery, but he'd solve it. He knew he would. He'd assemble the facts, analyse them, look at them from every angle with an open mind, and find out exactly how Lord Rust had organised it. Rank bad hat. He didn't have to sit still for something like that, especially from a man who rhymed house with mice. His eye was caught by the ancient book, General Tacticus. Every kid knew about him. Ankh-Morpork had ruled a huge empire, and a lot of it had been in Clatch thanks to him. Except there wasn't any thanks for him, strangely enough. Vimes had never quite known why, but the city seemed to be rather ashamed of the general. One reason, of course, was that he'd ended up fighting Ankh-Morpork. The city of Genua had run out of royalty, inbreeding having progressed to the point where the sole remaining example consisted mostly of teeth, and senior courtiers had written to Ankh-Morpork asking for help. There'd been a lot of that sort of thing, Vimes had been surprised to learn. The little kingdoms of the Stow Plains were forever scrounging spare royalty off one another. 
the king had sent Tacticus out of sheer exasperation. It's hard to run a proper empire when you're constantly getting blood-stained letters on the lines of, Dear Sire, I beg to inform you that we have conquered Betrek, Smail, and Ushistan. Please send Ankh-Morporkian dollars 20,000 back pay. The man never knew when to stop, so he was hastily made a duke and packed off to Genua, whereupon his first action was to consider what was the city's greatest military threat, and then, having identified it, to declare war on Ankh-Morpork. But what else had anyone expected? He'd done his duty. He'd brought back heaps of spoils, lots of captives, and almost uniquely among Ankh-Morpork's military leaders, most of his men. Vimes suspected that this last fact was one reason why history didn't approve. There was a suggestion that this was in some way not playing fair. Veni vidi vici. That was what the man was supposed to have said when he'd conquered, where, Pseudopolis, wasn't it? Or Al-Kali? Or Querm? Maybe Stolat? That was in the old days when you attacked anyone else's city on principle and went back and did them over again if they looked like getting up. And in those days you didn't care if the world watched. You wanted them to watch and learn. Veni vidi vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. As a comment, it always struck Vimes as a bit too pat. It wasn't the sort of thing that you came up with on the spur of the moment, was it? It sounded as if he'd worked it out. He'd probably spent long evenings in his tent, looking up in the dictionary short words beginning with V, and trying them out. Veni, vermini, vomui. I came, I got ratted, I threw up. Visi, venere, vermusi. I visited, I caught an embarrassing disease, I ran away. It must have been a big relief to come up with three short, acceptable words. He probably made them up first, and then went off to see somewhere and conquer it. He opened the book at random. It is always useful to face an enemy who is prepared to die for his country, he read. This means that both you and he have exactly the same aim in mind. <laughs> bingly, 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 beep! Vimes's hands slammed down on the box. Yes, what is it? 3.05 p.m. Interview with Corporal Littlebottom, re-missing Sergeant Colon, said the demon sulkily. I never arranged anything like... Who told you? Are you telling me that I've got an appointment and I don't know about it? That's right. So how do you know about it? You told me to know about it last night, said the demon. You can tell me about appointments I don't know about, said Vimes. There's still appointments, sine qua appointments, said the demon. They exist, as it were, in appointment phase space. What the hell does that mean? Look, said the demon patiently, you can have an appointment at any time, right? So therefore any appointment exists in potentia. Where's that? Any particular appointment simply collapses the waveform said the demon. I merely select the most likely one from the projected matrix. You're just making this up, said Vimes. If you were right, then any second now... Someone knocked at the door. It was a polite, tentative tap. Vimes didn't take his eyes off the smirking demon. Is that you, Corporal Littlebottom? he said. Yes, sir. Sergeant Colon has sent a pigeon. I thought you ought to see it, sir. Coming? A small roll of thin paper was placed on his desk. He read, Have volunteered for a mission of vital importance. Nobby is here also. There will be statues of us when this day's work is over. P.S. 
Someone, I can't tell you who, says this note will self-destruct in five seconds. He is sorry he hasn't got good chemicals to do it better. The paper began to crinkle around the edges and then vanished in a small puff of acrid smoke. Vimes stared at the little pile of ash that remained. I suppose it's a mercy they didn't blow up the pigeon, sir, said Cheery. What the hell are they up to? Well, I can't chase around after them. Thanks, Cheery. The dwarf saluted and departed. Coincidence, said Vimes. All right, then, said the demon. Bingley, 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 beep. 3.15pm, emergency meeting with Captain Carrot. It was a cylinder, tapering to a point at both ends. At one end, the taper was quite complex, the cylinder narrowing in a succession of smaller and smaller rings, overlapping one another until they ended in a large fishtail. Oiled leather could be seen gleaming in the gaps between the metal. At the other end, extending from the cylinder for all the world like a horn of a unicorn, was a very long and pointed screw thread. The whole thing was mounted on a crude trolley, which was in turn riding on a pair of iron rails that disappeared into the black water at the far end of the boathouse. Looks like a giant fish to me, said Colon, made of tin. With an own, said Nobby. It'll never float, said Colon. I can see where you've gone wrong there. Everyone knows metal sinks. Not entirely true, said Leonard diplomatically. In any case, this boat is designed to sink. What? Propulsion was a major headache, I'm afraid, said Leonard, climbing up a stepladder. I thought of paddles and oars and even some kind of screw, and then I thought, dolphins. That's the ticket. They move extremely fast with barely an effort. That's out at sea, of course. We only get the shovel-nosed dolphin in our estuary here. The linkage rods are a bit complicated, but I used to be able to get quite a turn of speed. The peddling can be somewhat tiresome, but with three of us we should be able to get up some quite satisfactory accelerations. It's amazing what you can do when you imitate nature. I just wish my flying exp... Oh, where did you go? It would be difficult to establish what part of satisfactorily accelerating nature the watchmen were trying to imitate, but it was a part which tended to get stuck indoors a lot. They stopped struggling and began to back into the room. Ah, Sergeant, said Lord Vetinari, entering in front of them, and Corporal Nobbs, too. Leonard has explained everything to you. You can't ask us to go in that thing, sir. It'll be suicide, said Colon. The patrician brought his hands together in front of his lips in the manner of someone praying, and sucked air thoughtfully. No, no, I think you are wrong, he said at last, as if reaching a conclusion on some complex metaphysical conundrum. I think that in all probability going into that thing would be a valiant and possibly rewarding deed. I would venture to suggest that in fact it is not going that would be suicidal, but I would appreciate your views. Lord Vetinari was not a heavily built man, and these days he walked with the aid of an ebony cane. No one could remember seeing him handle a weapon, and a flash of unaccustomed insight told Sergeant Colon that this was not in fact a comforting thought at all. They said he'd been educated at the Assassin's School, but no one remembered what weapons he'd learned. He'd studied languages, and suddenly, with him in front of you, this didn't seem like the soft option. Sergeant Colon saluted, always a useful thing to do in an emergency such as this, and shouted, Corporal Nobbs, why aren't you in the, 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 the metal sinking fish thing? Sarge, 
Let's see you get up them steps, lad. Hup, hup, hup. Nobby scrambled up the ladder and disappeared. Colan saluted again. You could usually tell his nervousness by the smartness of his salute. You could have cut bread with this one. Ready to go, sir, he shouted. Well done, sergeant, said Vetinari. You're displaying exactly those special qualities I'm looking for. Here, Sarge, came a metallic voice from the belly of the fish. There's all chains and cogwheels in here. What's this do? The big auger in front of the thing started to squeak around. Leonard appeared from behind the fish. I think we should all get in, he said. I've lit the candle that'll burn down and sever the string that'll release the weight that'll pull the blocks out. Eh, what's this thing called? said Colan as he followed the patrician up the ladder. Well, because it is submersed in a marine environment, I've always called it the going-under-the-water-safely device, said Leonard behind him. But usually I just think of it as the boat. Thinking up good names was, oddly enough, one area where Leonard of Quirm's genius tended to give up. He reached behind him and shut the lid. After a moment, any listener in the boathouse would have heard a complicated clonk, as bolts slid into place. The candle burned down and severed the string that released the weight that pulled the blocks out, and slowly at first the boat slid down the rails and into the dark water, which after a second or two closed over it with a gloop.